You're listening to the Feral House Podcast, Episode 3. So welcome to the Feral House Podcast, and we are speaking with Jason Louv. Uh, he is a member of the Extended Feral family, and I'm going to let Jason say hello and tell us how he's a part of the family. Yes, thank you for having me on, Christina. It's great to be talking to you, Feral House Extended Family, Feral House family. So, uh, yeah, well, I, let's see, I uh, my, my Feral House journey as a as it were, probably started when I read Apocalypse Culture when I was 16. And I think it, as I told Adam on multiple occasions, it permanently, uh, I think, damaged my brain. Um, you among so, many. Uh, and yes, yes. <laughs> and and uh, it gave me uh, deep traumatic scars that I'm still working out to the, pre- to, to the present day. <laughs> uh, but I, um, you know, I, I certainly grew, grew up in in the 90s reading as a teenager reading you know uh, a conspiracy literature and a culture and certainly feral house books and and i uh i went off to work in the publishing industry started my career at disinformation and then worked with adam uh for several years editing um, working, uh, doing copy editing on Feral House books, including, you know, he was very, uh, very gracious to, um, uh, want to work with me. And we, let's see. So the ones I worked on, I think were, we did Cholo style, um, uh, dark mission. Uh, I think I maybe did something like 10 Feral House books, but definitely the, the process church, uh, process church book, uh, love, sex, fear, death, and Secret Agent 666 about Crowley I worked on a little bit, and, and certainly some of the more culture-related titles, since that's primarily been my focus. And then the big one was uh, The Psychic Bible, which actually I worked on starting with Genesis. That was the, I, I worked on that book for five years, uh, painstakingly putting it together from uh, the Temple of Psychic Youth archives uh, in Jen's basement because I worked very closely with, with Genesis as a as a you know direct student for close to a decade uh, in in close contact and one of the things that I obviously was doing with, with Genesis was bringing the story together of Hopi and the culture and what had happened in the eighties so we took what had originally been a very tiny book the you know the Psychic Bible which was practically a zine and turned it into the Feral House book, which is the, you know, 600-page, nearly 600-page hardcover. Right, definitive, and, absolutely definitive. Uh, the, the, yes, the, the absolutely definitive, in my opinion, the definitive book, not just on Topi, but on 1980s culture and, and what was happening in, in, the, in the real counter culture in the 80s, so, and, and the 90s and up to the present day. And then I brought that book to, after I actually had completed that book and then brought it to, to Adam. And then that was, uh, you know, that came out through Feral House and that was obviously a big, had a huge impact on, um, culture now. I mean, I still see, uh, I still see, you know, like young, young, uh, musicians and things like that sharing images of it on, 
on social media. I saw Grimes, who's you know extremely popular, uh, tweeting about it and showing off her copy. So I think that's a book that's going to have a huge resonance uh, uh, in, in in a real way for decades to come. What happens with I think many of the Feral House titles that have been published over the years. Um, I'm pleased to be involved with Feral House for the past uh, few years, and I think each of us put a small imprint on the on Adam's work, and Adam's very gracious to allow us to do so. And so you brought, as you said, a lot of that, your already interest in some of the occult um, history, and you've taken that interest and now moved it forward with your own work. Um, and again, what's very interesting, again, this very small world, is your new book coming out is John Dee and the Emperor of Angels, and that's published by Inner Traditions, and one of the folks over there is John E. Graham, who just did the translation for our new Francois Hardy um, autobiography. Again, so this world is a bit small. I think what's interesting, and I've been reading through through your uh, work on D, is that it's very much a different approach in the sense of it's not focused solely on that occult, the magical working per se, but also on the history as John D, the man, and the time around him. It's a big work. Um, can you tell me just a little bit, how did you come discover D's work? Yeah, so, yeah, so the book is my eighth book and it comes out April 17th and it's a, it is from inner traditions It's 560 page hardback. And it is the, it's a biography of John D. But more than that, it is in my opinion, the definitive work on the Western magical tradition and what it actually is. And it covers 500 years of history, starting with the, but then going into uh, the free, the birth of Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, Alistair Crowley and Jack Parsons, uh, who's, of course, Feral House readers should know from Sex and Rockets, and uh, all the way up even into the modern day with Trump and, and the Republicans. And what I have looked at there is the history of the apocalypse and the history of the plan of Western culture, the, the people on the higher echelons of, of um, certainly the planning of uh, the British and American empires to hasten the apocalypse. And I got interested in, in the subject of uh, magic per se and the occult simply because, well, one, it's fascinating. And, and uh, I have always been deeply fascinated in um, not just the secret history of, of the world as it were, but also, what the actual techniques that people have used historically and in the modern day to radically alter their consciousness and the long-term effects that that has had on the world. Um, in terms of D, so I guess I should just give a little bit, bit of a boilerplate on D. Uh, so Dr. D, John D, was the court astrologer for Elizabeth I, uh, kind of the, the, the head wizard, if you will, but also the primary scientific advisor in the late 16th century. And he is a phenomenal Renaissance man. <clears throat> um, he's somebody who not only uh, really modernized science at the time in England, he brought mathematical concepts to, to the UK from Europe that had not been available before. He, uh, uh, he had a personal library five times larger than that of Cambridge and Oxford. He became the scientific hub of the entire country. He was very influential in uh, navigation and optics, and most importantly, he was the person who who 
came up with the phrase the British Empire and gave Elizabeth I the idea that this tiny island nation, England, which was impoverished and had just gone through the Protestant um, or, or rather the, the Anglican split from Rome, this tiny impoverished country should be in control of the entire world as it soon was um, through the medium of naval power, which he also uh, gave them the technology to do. Um, but this is where history takes a very strange turn because it turned out that the phrase British Empire uh, D claimed was given to him by an angel that he contacted in an occult ritual. And in fact, later in his life, he spent almost 10 years doing nothing but attempting to lay out a scientific method for contacting angels and uh, delivered almost a thousand pages of records of what he at least claimed were the utterances of the Old Testament uh, angels who very clearly loved this idea of a British empire and wanted, uh, wanted one totalizing world empire with uh, Elizabeth at the, as the terrestrial emperor of the entire world and the entire world united under one religion underneath the angels, which would bring together Catholicism, Protestantism, Islam, Judaism, and even paganism. And that sounds quite fantastical and almost comic booky and bizarre and like a conspiracy theory, but well, I would, I, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to jump in here. Um, so I think this yeah. is an, <clears throat> it's an interesting topic to talk about in, in, I, I may have slight, uh, a different version of, of that history. Um, I think that if we're talking about the time period, there was an essential battle between the, the rise of Protestantism as well as Catholicism as, and the idea of the Catholic mystery cults who incorporated distinct um, aspects of paganism as well as we're starting to take on after, you know, post-11, after the Crusades, a lot of the Arab... Um, mathematical and scientific traditions and bring those back to Europe. So D comes, I think, out of a lot of that schism, as you said, of Protestantism, where the core element is that you can have a direct communication with God. You do not need the intercession of priests or bishops. And I think that idea Absolutely. that you can talk directly to God informed a lot of the thinkers. You you get into the, into the book um, a little bit about that idea that Dee was also traveling around the continent. He was not just in England. He traveled around and in my reading so far, seems quite the opportunist and uh, took on the, the Catholic belief when it served him well, and then reneged on those and went back to being a good Protestant when it served him well politically. Um, I think one of the, right. the great skills of Dee was that he was a consummate politician. True. Uh, that's, that certainly, certainly he... So Dee is really at the center of that, you know, we could almost call it a magical war between the Catholic world and the Protestant world. You have to remember that the Reformation had just happened a few decades earlier. England had just split from Rome, and the Roman Holy Roman Empire and, and the Catholic bloc were, you know, furious, as you might imagine. And, you know, they, the 30 wars a year, or excuse me, 30 years war was, was uh, just around the corner, and they were doing everything that they could to um, stamp out Protestantism 
and that war was certainly fought bloodily in England and and the United Kingdom with the British Isles at that time, and goes all the way up to the modern day with um, you know the, the troubles in Ireland and 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 uh, you know that was a real bloody war. Um, it was because it was also being fought. Was, it was also being fought on continental Europe, um, throughout sure. right through the 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 northern borders of Italy, uh, Germany, Switzerland, through that entire area. Uh, so Absolutely. this was this was Absolutely. not this was not contained just to the UK or the modern day UK. This well, was well, well, uh, you know it was a, central to that central right central to the um, central to to the war was who could get control of the new world. And who could get control over America? And and uh, it was clearly that was you know Spain got lots of control over South America, and uh, England got a lot of and France got a lot of control over North America. And it was only because of these plans that, for instance, Sir Francis Drake circumnavigated South America, landing in San Francisco and claiming a lot of the uh, America for uh, England, and uh, later to be developed at New England. On the East Coast, but it was D who said that we we cannot cede, you know, they they could not cede control to the Catholic bloc, and that he was the one that understood that the New World was key to um, uh, a Protestant victory, and and that was the genesis of the the rich empire, the empire on which the sun never sets. But it was the angels themselves who allegedly gave him these ideas, and and then in terms of his travels on the continent. They directly ordered him to go to an attempt to start trying to convert the Holy Roman Empire um, to the cause of the angels, because the, in terms of you going back and forth between Catholicism and, and Protestantism, the angels were not particularly fond of either one. Uh, they simply thought that human beings were fallen, and and the idea that anyone should be able to talk to them without divine intermediary was, it seems to me, um, you know, if you take it seriously that that actually happened, was was their attempt to uh, uh, repair what had happened, uh, not just in Europe, but in, in human consciousness as a whole. But they were very interested in accelerating the timeline to the apocalypse. Uh, they were not particularly fond of humanity and thought that uh, humanity had certainly made a mess of things. And I, I think that the, the idea of a British empire, which, of course, is where we inherit the idea of an American empire, uh, directly and, and all the way up to why the modern world exists in the form that it does directly comes out of you know this time period, this type of thinking, and potentially recession themselves. Well, hmm. American founding, uh, the the number of British colonies that were sent over, um, the English at that time and a little bit later were doing experiments. Uh, the colony that finally took up traditionally the Mayflower uh, colony up at Plymouth was essentially the most fundamentalist group of Protestants. Uh, pilgrim essentially meaning that they were rejecting the modernity of that time and looking to establish their holy kingdom in a new place. They got their charter uh, because, again, from D's influence on later governments in the UK that they were going to try to impose their empire empire onto these new lands. I find it interesting that the most successful colony, again, was the most radical, fundamental, Calvinist-inspired colony, uh, which, again, is born out of D's philosophies. What I've really tried to 
bring to light in this book that I, I think is really going to interest people and, and probably disturb people and particularly disturb occult people, which I'm always happy to do because they're really easy to troll and I find it really funny, um, is that uh, that extreme evangelical uh, evangelicism um, that, and as you were just saying, you know, that, that stark black and white, you know, punishing view, uh, Old Testament kind of Puritan view was certainly responsible for the, the founding of America. We can certainly trace it all the way into um, the, the Christian fundamentalists now and extreme right-wing, you know, megachurch fundamentalists like John Hadji, uh, Hadji or Greg Lurie or some, you know, uh, certainly Billy Graham, the, the late Billy Graham. And, but what I really tried to show in this book is that those are two sides of the same coin, that the, the occult side of things and the Christian fundamentalist side of things really come from the same place, which is this time period. And, and certainly later in history, Aleister Crowley uh, was, was raised in Christian fundamentalism. So what, what I've discovered in this book is that um, even though most, I think, occult people in certainly in America are rebelling from a, a right-wing Christian upbringing, the right-wing Christian upbringing and the occult stuff come from the same place. They're two sides of the same coin. I, I agree with you. Um, I think, though, let's go back for a moment. And in modern terms for folks, because we, we've just badmouthed some of the kind of poser occultists, and let's define some terms. Uh, what do you mean when you use the word magic? It comes up a lot okay. in the idea, and you use the phrase, which I actually like in your book about D, is operational magic. What, tell me more about that. Okay. Well, let's, yeah, I mean, the best way to talk about it is just to go completely from a historical viewpoint as it relates to this time. So historically, in, in, during the Renaissance, uh, Europe was coming out of the Dark Ages. They had been under church domination for centuries. Um, there had been no information. People had not even been able to read the Bible. It had only been in Latin and only available to people who could read Latin and interpret it how they wanted, the priest, priesthood class. Um, and so the printing press, a couple things happened. One, obviously, was the printing press and the Gutenberg Bible. The, the People were able to read the Bible for the first time. And also, uh, Constantinople, earlier, uh, Constantinople had been sacked by the uh, Turk, uh, uh, by the uh, Turkish Empire at that time, the Turks, and because of that, after the fall of Constantinople, which had been the center of the, the Christian world, uh, Orthodox priests fled uh, Greece and came to, or excuse me, uh, uh, you know what is now Istanbul, Constantinople, uh, fled to the Medici city-states and brought with them all these manuscripts of, uh, as you mentioned earlier, kind of um, Islamic wisdom, but also um, uh, translations of Plato and Aristotle uh, that didn't, and classical wisdom from Greece and Rome that had not been available to Europe uh, at all. And so they were reading this stuff in the Greek city-states, or excuse me, I keep saying Greece, the, the Italian city-states, the Medicis, and there was a real effort to synthesize this knowledge from the classical world um, and to recover the knowledge that humanity had lost. And one of the things that ended up happening was they synthesized Neoplatonism with Kabbalah, 
which have been also now available in in Europe. Right. Uh, I mean, to, uh, Sephardi Jews. This this was the work essentially of the great Franciscan monasteries throughout Italy in uh, tra- saving, transcribing, and sharing that uh, kind of the lost wisdom of the Greeks. And I, I do, I do think as as we move forward in history, it was those, it was those Catholic monks um, and priests who did a great service, essentially disseminating that knowledge to the European continent and bringing it back from monastery to monastery. Um, I think. When we get to, then again, what you mean about the idea of magic, I think that at that time when we talk about the Renaissance and, you know, dark eight, 1400s prior to that, that the unknown, those mysteries of the unknown, a lot of those, the unexplained became uh, explainable by the idea of the intercession of the magical. Right. Well, as they got more access to this, this information, and it wasn't for the masses. It was we were talking about, you know, the the elites. The, I mean, so the, oh, absolutely. Uh, the Medici city states were like the Silicon Valley of their day, and they were fascinated. What they really wanted was to get some type of synthesis of not just this ancient wisdom, but things that had been floating around Europe, like the Gamora tradition and uh, folk magic. They wanted to synthesize all of it into a proto science. Uh, with the idea being that they it would give them control over the natural world and not just be able to understand um, uh, God per se, but be able to work with God in shaping uh, reality. And that there was, to do that, they were interested in Kabbalah, they were interested in uh, the conjuration of angels and demons, in numerology and charting star patterns, and all of the stuff that gets brought together in the work of a guy named Cornelius Agrippa, not only took Hermetic and Kabbalistic and Neoplatonic philosophy, but pushed it, tried to push it into, yeah, what they called operative magic, which is the idea that basically a a sage, somebody who is enlightened, can directly have influence over the world and start to shape it. Now, of course, a lot of what they came up with turned out not to work very well because it was, you know, pre-scientific. But that idea. Um, really underlied the development of modern science. It was the same, that same impulse, that same Faustian drive was what led to people actually, people like Francis Bacon pushing that forward into the scientific method and starting to refine uh, techniques for dramatically shaping, uh, reshaping the material world, which, you know, uh, I think in a few hundred years, you know, now we're on the verge of space colonization, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, uh, you know, genetic engineering, it's, it's been pretty dramatically successful, but it's all one continuum of thought going back to the Renaissance. And I think that Dee was really at the center of that. He, he really straddled the magical and scientific worldviews and, and saw them as one thing. And certainly contemporaries like um, Francis Bacon or a little bit later, Isaac Newton, really were approaching early science with the same set of magical assumptions, which were that simply uncovering knowledge was to uncover the knowledge of of uh, God, as they believed, and the and the scripture and the scientific study of the material world and and the development of the soul through alchemy were all part of one big thing, and so that's kind of the the context that I've tried to restore, uh, and and it's also something that's lost uh, in 
kind of the modern culture uh, uh, discourse. I think a lot of the modern occult discourse is much more about uh, uh, kind of having an outsider identity and, uh, um, you know, is a response to mainstream culture. It, it's much more, it, it's much more about art and subculture in the modern era, which is great. At, at this time in the Renaissance, it was really the, the center of the, the quest, mankind's quest for knowledge. Jason, we were talking about your, uh, that you've read Apocalypse Culture in 1992, and like for so many folks, it became one of those touchstone books. Again, keep in mind that this is pre-internet days. You could not just Google, uh, show me something weird and have weird things come up. Prior to Adam putting out Apocalypse Culture, you know, there was a lot of work done by the Church of the Subgenius. I, I think, as a li- someone a little older than you, was uh, really formative for me was the uh, Church of the Subgenius's High Weirdness by Mail. Um, that was a seminal book for me. But earlier than that, I think that when we grow up and we get exposed to both pop culture and different ideas, there are often... Uh, things, events, whether it's, you know, a strange cartoon or a strange idea that we're exposed to that helps set us on our path. And it's one of my favorite questions to ask folks. So I'm going to ask you, Jason, if you go back to childhood, is was there one thing, do you remember one thing that kind of set you on that path of being interested in something that is probably not so mainstream, like the occult and John Dee? Well, I, I, I mean, I was just a bookish kid and I was always interested in, um, I was always interested in uh, magic and the occult and the other side of things, but always, uh, you know, I was never a true believer and I still am not, but I certainly, I, I think, you know, like I had, I had some childhood illness when I was a kid and there were for a period of time, I was taken out of school and, um, and uh, there was, I had a, a, an illness where I had to lay in bed for, I think almost three months without moving or I would have uh, damaged my internal organs as mononucleosis. And, um, and so I, I spent almost three months, you know, out of the school system, not being able to move in the dark and just reading, you know, library books on weird stuff. And I, I certainly think that was a kind of a formative uh, initiatory experience because I was never quite, when they put me back into the school system, I was never quite at the same angle as everyone else. Um, and, but it was never an active pursuit. Uh, certainly it wasn't until I was a teenager at, that I really started to look at this stuff. And it was really from a skeptical angle as well, which I still maintain. I mean, I, I when I look at occult stuff, you know, I think almost 99% of it, I mean, occult stuff for me is like, for the most part, it's like interesting sociologically. It's, it's kind of like interesting culturally, but there are certainly core techniques that are absolutely valid. I think, for instance, esoteric yoga and uh, a lot of these things are uh, incredibly potent techniques. But as a teenager, I came at that stuff from a skeptical and almost a sarcastic angle because I wanted to disprove it. And I think that that's something that a lot of uh, um, a lot of people who start on this stuff, maybe with an angle they, they come at it from. Again, you have pre-internet, so I couldn't just Google some community to validate my, my own beliefs. I had to figure it out myself. Um, but it was by doing experiments, you know, I just started doing a called experiments and seeing uh, if they were real or not. And I certainly started getting results that were pretty, you know, shocking. 
And uh, that's when I really began to get interested in it. And that's, you know, began kind of a 20-year quest to go all over the world and study all these different spiritual traditions. And obviously I studied with Genesis uh, for many years and, uh, you know, immersed myself in things like Nepali shamanism or Sufism or uh, esoteric Buddhism, esoteric Hinduism, the Western magical tradition, certainly uh, neurolinguistic programming, all of these techniques with the attitude of, you know what, I know that a lot of this stuff is not, um, is maybe wishful thinking in some cases. It maybe is just kind of religious superstition in some ways. It's like, I know that. I went in with that assumption, but I also went in with the assumption that I wanted to find the 5%, you know, the, the 1%, whatever it was, that was real and valid. And that's kind of been a lifelong quest. And, and I, I do think there's a lot there that is certainly valid in terms of, of uh the radical change of human consciousness, uh, if you will. I'm always interested in how folks got on their path, their path towards discovery, and not necessarily belief, but the exploration of systems of belief. And I reminded a little bit uh, from some of your writing and what you were saying of that idea that became prevalent in the United States, that came from Germany in the mid-1800s, that idea of uh, German-style transcendentalism, which was the idea of perfecting oneself. That it wasn't necessarily always through a spiritual means, though spirituality was a component of it, but almost through the physicality of a practice, whether it's removing oneself um, from, you know, society to have a meditative aloneness to actual physical labor. I'm curious if you think that there's a through line with some of what you're talking about with D and your own explorations through all of these types of spiritual movements and um, ideologies that have specifically grown up in the United States, especially since the 1800s. Yeah, I think absolutely. And the connection is the Rosicrucians, these ideas, uh, when he was going around the, the continent, as you mentioned, uh, directly inspired the what we could call the culture of that day uh, in Prague, Bohem- uh, Bohemia, and um, in, in Central Europe. And uh, there really was this emphasis on exactly what you were saying, uh, you know, developing a kind of high culture, an enlightened culture in Europe based around not as much religion as this idea of alchemy, uh, self-transformation, um, uh, what we might think of as very much like the 60s, uh, this idea. I think if you look at the 60s and the idea of attaining not just kind of a higher consciousness of you will through psychedelics, uh, but also developing a high psychedelic culture um, and, and looking into new ways of living, like communal living and, and uh, group farming and uh, you know new social models and inventing a kind of uh, more open and loving and permissive culture and focused on on like you said transcendental ideas. Um, I think that that was really the climate in in Europe particularly following these influence on the continent. And those ideas were, were concretized in the Rosicrucian manifestos, which went on to, as you know, and, and for a very brief period of time in the early 1600s, there was this great flowering of, of alchemical culture in Europe, which, which again, I think would be very similar to the 60s today, 
or 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 the sixties closer to our time period, where everyone was talking about occult ideas and transcendental ideas and and high culture. And that unfortunately was wiped out during the Thirty Years' War, but the by the Catholics, uh, very bloodily. And the the ideas of the ideals of that culture, however, survived in the Rosicrucian manifestos and which directly referenced Guy's work and, and include his symbols. And those manifestos went on to inspire uh, Freemasonry and also the birth of modern science, the Royal Society, with uh, people like uh, René uh, Descartes and Francis Bacon led those manifestos. And so, and of course, Freemasonry uh, is directly responsible for the founding of America um, and the, the French and American revolutions. And I think that we can trace the secret history, the secret tradition, through D to the Rosicrucians, all the way into America, and certainly I think that you know the transcendental movement in in America, and certainly from transcendentalism all the way to the '60s and our, our current world. But we we see an interplay where this ideal, which I think we understand very well, listeners of this podcast, very you know, if you read Fellhouse books, I think you get exactly what I'm talking about. Um, this ideal of a higher culture has always been at war with fundamentalism. And, uh, for instance, D, uh, D's time, Elizabeth, was very brutally suppressed. Uh, you know, all this, these ideas of magic were very brutally suppressed by James I, the incoming king, uh, who was a you know, very right-wing evangelical. Uh, the, the Rosicrucian culture was stamped out by the Catholics. And in our, our modern day, I think that if you look at the transfer from the 60s, 70s psychedelic culture to uh, the Christian fundamentalist uh, kickback of the 80s, and even more recently, you know, uh, the Trump era uh, and the, the sudden swing of our culture to the hard right. Uh, this has been going on for a long time. There seems to be this battle between um, people who want a kind of magical utopia of enlightenment for all, all people, as he did, and an era of free thinking and free inquiry and the ability to um, think for yourself versus religious fundamentalism and, and church control and, and totalitarian control. And I think that we've been fighting that battle for 500 years, which, which is something that I've really tried to cast light on this book, because I think it'll really cast light on our modern circumstances where, where we're seeing, you know, this fight into superstition and, and darkness and, and, uh, hardcore right-wing fundamentalism and far-right nationalism. So what do you think that, uh, based on your lengthy work, uh, that folks should definitely read, what do you think Dee can teach us uh, practical operational magic for living in the modern era right now and combating some of the things you just pointed out? That's a really good question. I think that the, the most important thing is to understand the history, because when you when you understand, you know, for not to be glib, but when when you understand the occult war that's been going on for for so long and what's what's been going on behind the scenes, um, you, you will have a handle on what the modern world actually is, which is, I think, a pretty powerful thing, um, and uh, be able to see through the <clears throat> be see, be able to see through the the bars of the black iron prison, as Philip K. Dick called it. In terms of operational magic, I mean, D certainly left behind his Enochian system, which is a, a, you know, the core, the Enochian system as delivered by the angels is really the core of the entire Western magical tradition. 
it is, um, you know, an incredibly potent set of tools for uh, not just changing consciousness, but apocalyptically changing consciousness. So I'm not necessarily sure I widely recommend it to people because it's pretty uh, all-consuming and uh, and um, extreme. Well, I think but that that I comes. Think that, I, I think that just to understand to understand what the agenda has been in terms of locking down and controlling human consciousness and for what reasons, and to be able to see through that and to be able to maybe yearn towards that utopian ideal and, or, or even more so to, you know, as, as James Joyce said, you know, history is a nightmare that I'm attempting to wake up from. Um, I think that when we, we, we clearly see what, what history has been and, and how absurd it has been in many ways, I, I hope that I will have made it a little bit easier to wake up from for people who read the book. Well, I hope so too. So far, again, I haven't finished it yet, but I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And so our feral friends who are listening know, I come from a different background than Jason entirely. I'm a, an atheist raised from a long tradition of atheism in my family. Uh, and it's still really enjoyable and readable. So even if you think that you're not going to have a system of belief that jobs with what Dee is saying about angelic magic, Enochian magic, where Jason gets it right is in the history. And I think that, you know, even if you're not really into the angel part, I think you should read the book because the history is solid and um, there's a lot to work through. So I would definitely recommend this book for all of our feral fans today. Jason, thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, What is your next project? Oh, boy. Well, (laughs) uh, well, this has been a a three-year massive uh, project, and right now I'm just working on promoting it. So the the next project will certainly... uh, emerge when it's ready to, but uh, yeah, I'm kind of catching the breath a little bit after this one, but uh, so it might be too early to say. Hey fiends, thanks for listening to the Feral House podcast. We do this about once a month, talking to Feral House and Process Media writers, as well as members of the extended Feral family. You're part of the family. Let us know if you have any questions or if you have an idea of someone we should talk to. You can send me a note at press at feralhouse.com, P-R-E-S-S at feralhouse.com. 